This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm not going to derail this entire episode with the Murdoch trial, but I've been fascinated with it and I've rewatched everything for like the third time. Um, you and I have briefly talked at some point. I think it's been on the air about the DNA under the fingernails. But the other thing about it that was interesting was so, so first of all, like I cringe every time like he testifies because. For some reason, for me, and I'm a defense person, like I come out and default of the defense every time unless I absolutely, you know, believe in like the person's guilt. There's just something about his testimony that just deflates like the defense's case for me. Um, but one thing I did come across in addition to the DNA question that you had that's been very valid, and that is like whose DNA was under her fingernails? How did it get there? Why? is that not more focused on was, and I listened to multiple people talk about this online on YouTube and, and, and whatnot. Uh, they were talking about the different gunshot things. Like the defense had a theory about how the shotgun shot to Paul's head happened. The medical examiner took a lot of umbrage with that and they had a theory. So there's two theories as to what happens to Paul. And I realized something Based on the prosecution's case, not the defense, something that was very interesting to me, no matter what, there is a massive void pattern in Paul being shot the way he was shot to all the different forensic evidence surrounding that, blood and other biological matter. Everybody agreed to that. And according to the prosecution's window of time, unless he drove dirty, meaning like covered in stuff, where did all of that go? Like how did that guy clean up in like four minutes or whatever it was? The way that they tell the story, it's like him going to the kennels and back to the house and then then he's leaving the house and like there's this like questionable period of time where their phones stop having activity and he is on the way to his parents' house. Then he clearly comes back and calls 911. That is the fastest crime scene cleanup in the history of mankind. It's it, I think I counted it in their timeline this time around. And it's like between three and four and a half minutes. Anyways, I just wanted to mention that because I am weirdly fascinated with that uh, case. Did you want me to, did you have a question for me? I mean, did you notice that? Did you notice that it's like a super fast cleanup and they never really resolve what happened in my opinion? Well, to me, they did resolve it. Um, As far as the cleanup goes, the implication would be that um, he uh, used the, 
hose at the dog kennel to hose himself down. Gotcha. And so he, like, so what does that consist of? Well, who knows? I mean, they didn't do a thorough. Well, it wouldn't matter anyways because their biological evidence would be in weird places down there because of the way they were killed. So that makes sense. I mean, I understood that implication uh, with the whole, like, the hose was weird and, like, all that. I understood all of that. I just, I I guess they're saying that's why it was so quick is he just used the hose outside and it took him two minutes or whatever. Right. And it didn't seem like anybody really looked for that by the time, um, you know, it had kind of misted and then it was raining. Depending on how far he went, you know, it would become irrelevant as he sprayed himself off. And I do think that you could spray yourself off relatively well. Um, And that's just going along with, you know, the fact that he's been found guilty. Um, I, I, I don't know that I'm fascinated with this case, but it certainly keeps coming up. And it is one of those sort of just, you know, it's an awful, tragic uh, situation that happened, right? Yeah. And then he's been found guilty of their murders. Was there anything specific about his testimony you were going to ask me about? At some point, like, I was doing something else when that trial popped up, and I sort of incorporated some aspects of it. It's it's a fascinating trial to me. Uh there's not a specific question I have about his testimony other than why did they let him testify? Um, he didn't have a choice, really. Uh, that was really his only way of explaining uh, the big hole that the prosecution alluded to with uh, the video being found on Paul's phone so much later. Um, yeah. there, was, there was no question that his voice was on the video. There was no question the video was taken at 8.44 p.m. They had all of his interviews with law enforcement, and um, his story was that he had been at the house and left to go to his mother's, and there was an implication that he was therefore lying because he was clearly at the kennels at 8.44. It is possible that those two situations in my mind are not mutually exclusive but the prosecution presented it in a way that made it seem like it was mutually exclusive and the only way uh, that his voice would be on that video is if his entire story was a lie um i uh i've i've watched like you said i've watched you know sort of the intricate details, not entirely sure he was lying. However, he got on the stand and said he was lying. So, Yeah, I tried to – I watched it at one point thinking maybe it was self-preservation. I watched it at another point going maybe this is a setup. And then I I just can't – I for some reason, I, I have no way to find that guy defensible. Like what do you – like it, it just gets worse like the, the more I watch it. That like, and it's not that I buy the prosecution's case more. That's not what's happening with that case because I've watched their case in chief multiple times, and I've watched the whole thing probably three times all the way through. Um, but the other thing that I've done there, um, and I say watch, but really I've listened. I've watched it at least once, but I've listened um, to to all of it. What happens to me the more I listen to it is the less I believe the defense. It's not that I believe the prosecution more. It's just that I like I don't believe what the defense is saying. And like 
it's just the defense was it was farcical yeah i know i you know i could uh, again i could derail this because that's sort of my instincts i i wanted to bring up bring up a piece of true crime news which will get me off of this murdoch case like to stop thinking about it because ain't nobody getting alec murdoch off that's for sure um, well, would you have would you have convicted him if he'd sat on the jury? No, I wouldn't have. Like, I would not have. Like, if I were a juror, the one thing that would have kept me from convicting him would have been the DNA evidence. Because until they explained that to me, because th- weirdly, like that's the one thing that has been hammered home to me, uh, particularly f- being a person who is you know, prone to taking the defense perspective because of, you know, my own experiences. When I look at that case without explaining the DNA under her uh, left-hand fingernails, I don't, like, it makes the rest of the prosecution's case questionable. And the defense did not do enough to make that a center point. But it's a juror, I would have caught it. And And do you think that's the difference? Yeah, I don't think the jury caught it. I don't think I don't think the jury understood what was happening there. Um, and I don't either. And you know, obviously, it's not their fault. Well, how um, would you have voted? Oh, I would have. I would have. He would have either been not guilty, or I would have hung the jury on the DNA. Yeah, um, I would have hung the jury on the DNA. But I will say, I would have explained it though, and I would say that it didn't have to be Alec Murdoff for that to be the case. Correct. But see, my see, here's my thing about that. That is the only piece of evidence from the prosecution's case in chief that when I heard her talk, and, and I've gone into this in detail elsewhere, so I'm not going to like do the whole thing right now, but I'm just going to say this. When I heard the DNA analyst or the uh, crime analyst for SLED talking, and then I heard their explanation, and then I heard the investigator talk, and then I heard the attorneys talk, I realized that they were talking around it and they were like, it'll be okay. But the thing is that DNA is the thing in dozens of cold cases. I just listened to a hearing in Los Angeles where they were letting someone out for a 20 year old sexual assault murder because of DNA under her fingernails that did not match him. And they matched the DNA to another gentleman who had just died. And I was like, you know, that's the definition. DNA under the fingernails that's not explained by the prosecution, not matched to anyone. And this is the key. It's glossed over at trial. That is the definition of reasonable doubt for me. Do you see it as being glossed over? Like you said that they were sort of um, skirting around it. I don't know if that was uh, just I, a black word. Well, it's not that they skirted around it. They avoided, like, okay. Yeah, it's glossed over or glazed over. And that's where somebody talks so long, they just bore you to tears and you're not paying attention to the rest of what they're saying. So your eyes glaze over. She did a lot of glazing over. Um, but where it gets glossed over is the prosecution might have known about it, which bothered me. They might have known that it was a problem because the way they beat around that bush 
was they allow the investigator to say it was irrelevant and that doesn't get really caught. But the bottom, what would change that though? Well, uh, what do you mean? What would change the, the relevance of it? It wouldn't. If, Identifying it. That's the, that's the definition. Now, of what would change, while they're in the middle of the trial and the lead, because to me, the lead investigator was not, uh, making something up when he said that he thought it wasn't relevant or he, that it couldn't be identified. Oh, no. no, that guy was not, he was not lying. He was not corrupt. He was inept. And that's right. the thing. And that's the thing where I would have gone as a juror, you know, cause they didn't have notebooks. They didn't, they weren't taking notes. They weren't taking recordings um, in, in this particular trial. But as a juror that never got answered. And I would have listened to the rest of the trial waiting for an answer and like as everyone should yeah like only because in so many instances and i went back through uh i think the university of michigan law keeps a pretty good tab on this i went back through looking at dna under the fingernails didn't match semen didn't match dna under the fingernails didn't match there's so many exonerations that happen because of DNA under the victim's fingernails. And personally, me as a human being, my definition of reasonable doubt is steeped in what judges find to be reasonable doubt in other cases. And that, the the idea of taking fingernail clippings and finding DNA that doesn't match the first responders, it isn't excluded in any way. It's just sitting there sort of looming. Unfortunately for me, I could not have in good conscience. I would have, I would have turned the jury. I would have I would, turned I would have every too. one of them. And if um, not, I would have I would have hung it on that. Um and the reason is because um and, and I think two DNA concepts have merged here. I think that the touch DNA being a thing, which touch DNA is literally like skin cells that you could tell every single person that's ever touched a doorknob, right? (laughs) That's what touch DNA is. And the significance of DNA under the fingernails, uh, like the availability of touch DNA has not nullified the significance of DNA under someone's fingernails. And that's sort of what happened there. But if you notice during the trial, the DNA analyst, she's asked by the defense attorney, Mr. Barber is who's doing the cross. And he says, you know, did you identify this? And she had a profile from the unidentified DNA that was excluded from everyone she checked against. And he said, did you do a mitochondrial DNA analysis on it? And she said, no, I didn't see why that would be important because it wouldn't narrow it down close enough to find out who it is because the mitochondrial DNA is passed from the mother, right? Yeah. And so the defense attorney had an opportunity to say, why would that not be relevant? Right? Because even, I mean, they've already excluded the Murdochs, right? And every male related to Maggie. Right. So to me. A bunch of other people, by the way. And a bunch of other people. But why would the mitochondrial DNA analysis be irrelevant if it pointed in in a different direction? 
I don't know. I mean, my problem with it was I don't – so this is what I have to remember. It's not the defense's job to prove how that fits in the puzzle. They could have done a better job in pointing out the importance of it, I believe. Uh, I can definitely – I can say – 100% sure that would have changed my vote. And if jurors actually knew what was being said there, I think it would have changed their votes. The investigator didn't understand it enough to ask more questions. Or it might have been one of those scenarios where he knew it was going to lead in a direction that wasn't Alec Murdoch. And he decided that he would stop it. And the prosecution just ignored it. And the analyst just glazed it to make it boring. I don't think it was all on purpose. I think it was just they were inept. All of them. I, I agree with that. Inclu- I don't think they did it on purpose. And, and I'm saying that from the perspective of the defense, the prosecutor, all the attorneys in there. But that judge, like, to to come down as hard as he could on the defense at the very end in his final statement to um, for sentencing to the defendant, um, for him not to have thought more of that DNA evidence is it's sort of – concerning. Yeah, it, it's, it's sort of concerning for – you know, I don't want to put the whole criminal justice system under the microscope, but like it's almost like we're not smart enough to learn from what we're learning that we weren't smart enough about. Right, because there's they're consistently undoing cases based on ad- unidentified DNA that's now been identified as someone other than the person who's been sitting in jail for it, right? Yep. And um, we witness it happen right in front of us and like nobody even blinks. Well, 25 years ago, we had an excuse. There was no DNA. We didn't understand it. We didn't know it was a thing. I don't know that understanding it has changed. I will well, say I, that I, from I, a completely, like, you know, layperson standpoint, unidentified DNA does not work. It's got to be identified. It doesn't mean that Alec Murdoch didn't do it. Right. It's but it's got to be ruled out. You've got like, to know who did it, and an explanation has to be made for why that DNA is under her fingernails. Yeah, and now we're 20 minutes into this, and like I, I'm going to keep railing on that, it, like because I'm on the same boat you are. Like on the one hand, I'm like, all right, well, he's in jail. On the other hand, I'm like, okay, he's in jail, but that is looming. So people can look at it from either perspective. They can look at it from the perspective that uh, somebody else – noticed it and said something the other day online. I saw it somewhere online. I don't know where I saw it, but they said something about, we want to keep him in jail. And I was like, you know what? That's a good way to put it. Like, we don't want to give him an out on appeal that this DNA existed. Because, so the way that the way that appeals work down there, what will happen is the first appeals will be entirely technical. They will be about the proceedings themselves It'll be about the defendant's rights and, and like the court's rulings and all the things that are on the record as objections and the way the court ruled on those things. Those will come under scrutiny for the appellate courts. And then, you know, if there's something in there and there's a ruling goes one way or the other, there'll be hearings on that. Um, and there can be an appeal for, you know, the results of those hearings. But at some point in time, this is going to become sort of a habeas matter. Uh, where you know they'll they'll start looking at different matters related to I don't want to say the trial but the cases and once it goes for those type hearings uh, that fucking DNA is going to matter um, it's going to matter a lot and it matters 
because it's supposed to. Well, um, for whomever said that, like, we want to keep him in jail, well, if he did it, sure. But it, if you take Alec Murdoch out of the equation and you just say a defendant is in jail while one of his victims had unidentified male DNA under her fingernails, every single person should have that, uh, they should doubt if the defendant did that until that unidentified DNA is identified. Yeah, and so... My last sentence on this, I swear. The problem I had was the SLED investigator talking about it one way and it appearing in the paperwork another way. The SLED investigator acted like it wasn't enough DNA to do anything with it. But then the SLED paperwork says we ruled out this long list of people that I mentioned in another episode. That's the problem. Well, she. I mean, I guess it could be seen that way. I mean, the lead investigator versus, like, the sled paperwork. No, I mean, the, that guy said it, it wasn't important and we couldn't do anything he with said it. He couldn't, it couldn't be identified is what he said. I understand that. But then how are they ruling out all these other people? No, the the, the FBI – or I'm sorry, the uh, sled lab report indicated a profile – was obtained from the unidentified male DNA under Maggie Murdoch's fingernails. There's a profile, which means it can be compared. The, the issue is it's got to be a direct comparison. There's not enough there to put it into a pool and hope it comes back with a hit, right? right They've got to right. actually look one-to-one. Moving away from the Murdoch case before we both, like, talk ourselves blue in the face because i think we would i'm over it at this point but the dna is really important so i'm fine if you want to keep talking about it um there, there was an old murder case a really old murder case from summer of 2011 that had some resolution did you see the one i'm talking about this i don't from, know this is from ohio so uh okay about on or about August 13th, I think. Yeah, it's August 13th. That uh, a woman named Caitlin Markham disappeared up in Ohio. And I pulled up an ABC News article from August 29, 2011 by a woman named Jessica Harper. And uh, the title is Missing Ohio Woman's Fiance Has a Gut Feeling She's Alive. And Tech, Texas EquiSearch uh, is joining the search for Caitlin Markham, who's been missing for more than two weeks. Uh, and here's what it says. The fiance of missing Ohio woman, Caitlin Markham, believes that she's still alive despite her having vanished over two weeks ago. John Carter told ABCnews.com, my gut feeling is that she's alive and she's okay. I have to believe she's alive. I have to believe I'm going to have her in my arms soon. Uh, at the time, Carter was 23. He was the last person to see Kate, uh, Caitlin Markham before she disappeared. Police told ABC affiliate WCPO, that they have very few leads in Markham's disappearance, and there's no evidence of foul play, but it could not be ruled out. They talked about where EquiSearch was going to be searching sort of around uh, her home in these wooded areas and a, a local park. She left behind her cars, uh, she left behind her vehicle, her keys and her purse, but she had taken her cell phone with her, and calls to that cell phone were going straight to voicemail at the time. So her fiancé, John Carter, he said that he visited her on August 13th at her home. And they discussed a plan or a hope or a dream 
to move to Colorado in November of 2011. Caitlin was supposed to be finishing her bachelor's degree in graphic design. Markham had been working at David's Bridal and at a local bookstore. Carter said he received multiple text messages from Markham after he left her in the early hours of August 14th. One of those text messages asked him to burn some of her bank documents. Why would somebody do that? I don't know. Well, the, the impression he gives is it's like for destruction. So Carter says she had a big old bag full of stuff in the bank, had me go and burn them. Personally, it was really just an innocent little chore she wanted me to do for her. Basically, I went to a friend's house and then I got rid of them. So, so her body got burnt. That's what I assume. He said <laughs> um, his old mom had suggested that she burn her bank documents since she didn't own a paper shredder which I think back to the time when like my mom would have this weird paper shredder in her house. Anyways. If we're um, being honest here, a couple of years ago, I burnt about 15 years worth of bank documents that my husband would not throw away. I mean, I I have a burn barrel on my property. I have two burn barrels in different places on my property. I I throw stuff away. I don't care, but he wouldn't throw them away, and I was tired of it, so I burn it all. Hmm. So I hear you. But I I don't think – I think that was an excuse, right, in this case. Yeah, oh, definitely. So she disappeared right before her birthday. There was a $5,000 reward, and she was a little girl. She was 5'3", with 120 pounds. Like a Um, bag full of bank documents? Well, it turns out she was found. I mean, so Caitlin it was not uh, a mystery forever. Um, she was found. She, even though she disappeared in 2011, she was found in what did I have the date marked as? I had a couple of things. She was found over in. Um, it was. Southeast. It was almost two years later. Okay. Yeah. April seventeenth. April seventh, two thousand thirteen. Caitlin Markham's remains were found in a garbage bag at a dump site along Big Cedar Creek in southeastern Indiana, near the state line with Ohio. But it's about 30 miles away from her house. Death was ruled as a homicide, but the cause of death was unknown. Now, the case went cold for many years. It's been featured in a lot of television shows, on a documentary. Um, The reward grew to... $100,000 $100,000 uh, for information in her disappearance. And there was a lot of law enforcement agencies involved, sort of because of the jurisdictional thing, but also because, you know, it's a, it's a missing young woman. In February of 2023, one of her friends, Caitlin Markham's friends, a guy named uh, Jonathan Palmerton, who would have been a little bit older than her at the time, he ended up being arrested and charged with felony perjury in connection with her death. So that same day, authorities executed search warrants at John Carter, her fiance's former home in Fairfield, where he had been living with his mother, as well as other residences of friends' relatives. They also excavated several backyards looking for evidence. So this is February 2023. This is 12 years later. So at that time, they didn't really say what they were looking for, but they – they actually made it look in the news, if you saw it unfolding over the last month or so, it looked like they were going after Palmerton. Like they were going to uh, basically be charging Jonathan Palmerton with more than just perjury. But then 
on Wednesday, uh, March 22nd, 2023, they arrested her fiance, John Allen Carter, and they booked him into the Butler County Jail, uh, and he's there without bond. He has been charged with two counts of felony murder. So that case looks like it might be heading to a resolution. That's an old case to suddenly be uh, having that kind of arrest, don't you think? Um, I agree. I feel like you mean because of the way it panned out. Yeah, because so first of all, she was a missing person for a long time. 24 months is not forever. It's not 20 years, but it's a long time for her to be missing. Um, it is, um, especially since, you know, she's found in a garbage bag. Right. Which, I mean, I bet the poor people that found her, I mean, yeah. how's that even happen, right? I don't I don't know exactly how that ended up happening, but uh, it, it was a dump site, like sort of a place where people just toss things, which... I think they were probably, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Like, that can actually be a thing sometimes, and, you know, they... They certainly weren't looking for a body. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's definitely true. And I think that this is just a situation where it was kind of bad luck for the uh, ultimate defendants in this case, but it was really good for her family to be able to, you know, recover her. I can't um, go along with that as well, far as it being bad luck for them. I understand what you're saying, but I just can't. I mean, it, it, I mean, they got what they deserved. I assume they have evidence of some sort, not to mention the fact that it's always the significant other. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's... <laughs> all right, well, that's fine. We're going we're gonna to cover one of those cases too. So, so really the main cases that we're covering, like uh, sort of between serial killers, I wanted to cover some unusual cases that were making mainstream headlines that might have an alternative perspective. Um, the one that I chose was a couple of years before Caitlin Markham's disappearance in 2011, uh, and it's on the East Coast, though. Um, this is an August 2nd, 2006, unsolved homicide. Now, a two-part documentary popped up on Peacock related to this case, which is why we're talking about it today. You had asked me to take a look at it and to see if I had any particular opinions of this case. I, I have a lot of opinions about this case. But none of my opinions ultimately help any kind of resolution with this case. So I'm going to run through what happened and who the victim was. And then uh, you and I are going to discuss it a little bit and see if we have some, some different opinions than what was going on there. Uh, I'm going to give the Cliff Notes version. But again, this is a, uh, a two-part documentary about this. And it is on Peacock. We're not in, paid to endorse them or anything. It's just something cool in true crime that they have going where they have sort of a separate little channel uh, of true crime stories. And this is a pretty intricate two part documentary. I think it was about, it was a couple hours long. I don't, I don't know. It's exactly. two parts. Um, I think it's maybe an hour each episode, but did you know anything about this case beforehand? I'd never heard of it. I thought it was interesting just from that perspective. Yeah. I was incredibly familiar with this case. I have always considered this case to be one that had like, one missing element element for me um, that I've never I've never been able to get past, and I honestly have always put that on the investigators. And I'll get to why in a second. So the victim here 
is a fourth generation Chinese American who was born in Manhattan, raised in Brooklyn, New York. He graduated from Zaverian High School as the valedictorian of his class, and then he attended William and Mary. Uh, he was a James Monroe scholar there. He had made some really close friends uh, in the 92 93 academic year while he was there, uh, including one of the gentlemen that comes up a little later in this case, where they were involved in uh, honor society and several student government uh, positions sort of side by side. Uh, there's an age difference. I believe that our victim is a freshman when the other gentleman is a senior. Now, in 1996, he he graduates from William and Mary, and then he goes to the University uh, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and he graduates from there with honors in 1999. And uh, you know he's a he's basically a lawyer. He had served as a law clerk to Judge Raymond Jackson, who was federal district court judge in the Eastern District of Virginia. And then he uh, had worked in commercial real estate law for about six years. Uh, he was an attorney with the Washington, D.C. law firm of Covington and Burling. Now, he was uh, an interesting person from the perspective of being a Chinese-American. He did a lot of public service for the firm with organizations that serve Chinese-Americans, including being the general counsel for OCA, which is the Organization of uh, Chinese-Americans. Now, in June of 2003, he got married to a woman named Catherine Ellen Yu, and the couple lived in Fairfax County, Virginia. Of course, I'm talking about uh, the, the victim here is Robert Eric Wan. Now, on June 30th, 2006, about uh, two months before the incident in, in the story, uh, Robert leaves Covington and Burling, and he gets hired as the general counsel for a U.S. Uh, government-funded private nonprofit news service called Radio Free Asia. So Robert's very active in the Asian American community, uh, particularly with his work with the OCA. He is also very active with uh, the Mu Museum of the Chinese in America, which is a museum in New York, um, talking about Chinese-American history through their exhibits and art there. At the time of his death, he was the president-elect of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association. The night of August 2nd, 2006, Robert had multiple uh, meetings going on related to work. And he was going to stay over in DuPont Circle, which is a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., with some friends so that he did not bother uh, his wife coming back in that night. Um, but also because he, he was just trying to, he was trying to cut out a little bit of the commute and um, he, he had wanted to catch up with some friends. Now the friends he wanted to catch up with were one of the guys I mentioned above. His name was Joseph Price and he had gone to William and Mary with Robert. He had a domestic partner named Victor Zaborski. And they also lived there with a gentleman named Dylan Ward. So the idea in the documentary and in all the police interviews and in these people's lives is that Joseph and Victor were having a polyamorous relationship as a family with Dylan. So they were all sort of partners together intimately and familially and they lived together. Now, 
around 10.30 p.m., Robert comes over um, after working with Radio Free Asia. And this has been arranged for, like, days. And during the newscast that night, the 11 o'clock newscast, so it would have been between, uh, the investigator said it would have been uh, when a particular reporter was talking, and I think they timed it so that it, it had to have happened between 11.08 and 11.35. Like, those were the times that uh, this specific reporter talked. Uh, neighbors reported hearing a scream. Now, this scream is later identified as having been Victor Zaborski's, Joseph's domestic partner. Um, and Zaborski makes a 911 call at 11.49 p.m. Paramedics arrive about five minutes later, followed by officers from the Metro Police Department, uh, MPDC. And then at this point in time, Joseph, he calls Robert's wife, Catherine, and they all head to George Washington University Hospital. And at 12.24 a.m. on August the 3rd of 2006, Robert is pronounced dead. Initially... Price, Zaborski, and Ward, they all speak to the police without attorneys. There are video re uh, recordings of all of these interviews. They're played in the documentary. The three men deny any involvement in Robert's death. And they speculate that someone had broken in and killed him. This is 2006. It's in Washington, D.C., uh, if you go to read the wiki article, they don't give you like a lot of details about what happened to Robert Wong, but I'm going to give you the nutshell version here. Um, and I don't think I'm giving anything away that's not available in newspapers and public information and only in the documentary, but it shouldn't stop you from watching the documentary. Robert dies from stab wounds. He is stabbed three times with a knife from inside this row house that Joseph, Victor, and Dylan share. When the police arrive, and I guess when the paramedics arrive, the guys, Joseph, Victor, and Dylan, they're all dressed in these nice white hotel bathrooms. They all appear to be freshly showered. And there is this real serious problem where the investigators do not know how to deal with these guys and their family or polyamorous relationship or thruple, whatever you want to call it. They take a tact with these um, gentlemen during the interviews that sort of derails the investigation right away. The 911 call is pretty suspicious. Um, in the middle of it, Victor Zaborski actually asked the 911 caller what time it is. Um, she tells them, like, it's 11.54 or whatever the time is at that moment. One of the big problems with this is uh, the crime scene is unusual in that for the wounds Robert has and the knife that was used, he should have bled everywhere. Uh, we've seen examples of this talked about in recent media. He did not. There's very little blood on him, on his attire, on the bed, on a, uh, a towel that is used to, like the 911 caller is instructing one of the gentlemen to put pressure on the wounds. And when they do that, there's very little blood that comes out onto the towel. 
Um, this is sort of explained later on to some degree. But the bottom line is it's an unusual crime scene. Uh, there's no real evidence of an intruder, but there's not – because of the fact that there's there's four guys in this house, three live there, one's visiting, uh, paramedics come in, the police come in. Uh, there's this whole thing going on where the, the crime scene sort of instantly contaminated. So the investigation that unfolds is sort of swinging uphill from very early on. Now, in the interviews, um, the the – the guys straight up say they never had a sexual relationship with uh, Robert because that's immediately where the investigators go is like, this is some kind of lover's quarrel gone wrong or something. Um, and they focus in on like, is he having uh, an affair with them? Is he sort of uh, closeted from his wife and, and whatever the guys stand up for him. And, so does Robert's family, and and that includes his wife Catherine, as uh, being straight and happily married, and just all around generally a very good guy. They the guys all attend his funeral. Uh, Joe Price, Joseph Price, is one of the pallbearers. It gets the attention of U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder because of you know, Robert's work and his ties to the area, uh, and because. Holder was working at the time for Covington and Burling. I guess he's not attorney general yet, but he's going to be in just a couple of years. A lot of people are are looking into this case and, and, and hoping that it'll be solved. They spent a lot of time. Um, and that's the police and the crime scene investigators related to this, trying to sort of piece together everything that happened. At one point, they tear this entire row house that these guys lived in apart. They spend about three weeks with it in uh, the possession of the NPDC, and they go through everything. They go, they pull out flooring, they pull out, uh, they cut out parts of the wall, they dismantle a staircase, uh, they go through the washer, the dryer, they go through all the sink traps. They are looking for areas that the blood could have gone or that Robert's body could have been clean in order to look like it did. So I'm going to pause there for a second. Do you think that's most of the relevant stuff, like to a point where... I do. Um, One of the things that I would just elaborate uh, just ever so briefly on would be that it, it was a very biased investigation. The bias comes from the fact that these, uh, the three men that he was spending the night with were gay right? Um, It's very obvious in how it's approached. To the extent that they did a rape kit on um, Robert and they found semen and they sent it to be tested. Well, hold on. There's more to it than that, though. They they also find some really weird stuff during the autopsy ahead of the rape kit. That's where I was headed next. But uh, you're right. If you have more to say on that, go ahead and do it. Because well, I had it was it. his semen. Yeah, it turns out to be his. Well, you yeah. asked me. I, I didn't realize you had more to set this up. Well, well, because the well, I was just I was just talking like up through the crime scene part. One of they find two really unusual things. Meg just named one of them. They do a rape kit on him, and I don't I don't know how deep I want to go into this. So a sexual assault evaluation isn't just about like checking the orifices, although that's part of it. It's also about like the thighs and the back and like parts of the body 
that a rapist might leave evidence. Um, in this case, they find that what they thought was going to be evidence is related to Robert. The other thing they find is he has these bizarre needle marks all over his body in different places. What did you make of the needle marks? It was where they were trying to get him uh, hooked up to an IV. Yeah, that's that's part of what I think was going on there. I don't think it had anything to do with his murder. What did you think of him having his own DNA all over him in the form of semen? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I thought yeah. absolutely nothing of it. Um, I felt like the bias lies in the fact that they gave him, they did a rape kit on him. Um, if let's say for uh, just a second, he was staying in like, you know, a, a uh, more traditional family's home. Right. Yeah. So you've got a wife and a, a husband and a, I don't know who the third person would be, but you know, let's just say there's three other adults that aren't, you know, three men in a polyamorous gay relationship, I don't think a rape kit would have been done on him. No, I don't think so either. I'm just saying. Um, and there was no evidence to really suggest he had been raped. No, there was nothing else. It's just the presence of semen that they end up focusing in on here. I, I will say this, and they kind of talk about this in the documentary. There's certainly evidence of it because they use the video and they use audio of, of some of the happenings here. Three days after the murder, the MPDC ends up having to bring in what at the time was called the GLLU. Now, the GLLU in D.C. was the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Unit that they had within their own department. And now it's never been disclosed what happened there, but in the interrogation tapes that pop up in this documentary, the questions they are asking, the detectives are asking of the men uh, in, they're inflammatory at best, discriminatory and accusatory at worst. I don't know that they're wrong for this type of interrogation. I will say uh, there was a lot of evidence that one of the men was actively involved in alternative kink lifestyles related to BDSM and not just standard power BDSM, but a, there were lots of toys and lots of fetishes going on where he and his partner and potentially their um, the third party in their relationship were engaging in, in various types of experimentation or ongoing uh, sexual preferences that the investigators did not understand. And um, they go through and there's a lot of paraphernalia involved in, in this particular uh, set of lifestyle preferences. And they collect all of the paraphernalia and they test it all to see if it's related to Robert. Turns out he's like, it's not. Um, in fact, like even the way that they sort of search and seize all of this stuff, it's pretty clear it wasn't involved. In, like, Cause you know, the, the MPDC has had control of this house. These guys are not going in and out of there. Uh, during the time period that they're discussing. Uh, it's pretty clear that like this was sort of a secret, um, but not a secret that they like 
were hiding, more like they just didn't leave it laying around their house and everything was tucked away and, and like in its appropriate places. And the, the police kept messing with it because they believed that sometime between the scream that's heard between 11 and 1135 and then 911 call at 1149, they believe the crime scene had been tampered with and cleaned up. That's one of the reasons they spent so much time going through this entire house. And they, they made a lot of allegations in the paperwork here uh, where, honestly, I think the police sort of get in their own way uh, in this case. I, I don't think that they could have um, derailed it with more irrelevant information if they tried. Yeah, they, they really get hung up on lifestyle choices and sexual preferences and the sexual paraphernalia or sex toys. It it really throws these detectives like they cannot wrap their head around what has happened because of standing in their own way, sort of gawking at uh, these guys' different lifestyle choices. So there's a lack of progress in this case. Now, it doesn't help matters that one of the guys who lives there Three months after his death, his brother, Michael, who's Joseph's brother, he, he and a guy named Phelps Collins, they come into the same house and they steal all the electronic equipment. Later on, uh, they get charged for it, but those charges get dropped and everything gets called a big misunderstanding. What MPDC says, so, so August is when Robert dies. And then the burglary actually happens in uh, October, but the charges get dropped. And in 2007, the police department says they were just about to make an arrest in the case, but the burglary derailed those plans. Well, I hate to tell you this, but burglary derailing those plans makes no sense. Um, They sort of hint that maybe some of the electronics that were taken had some evidence on them. They never back this up with anything. There's not even affidavits. Um, in fact, the police never even reveal the big arrests they were going to make, uh, nor the charges that they were planning on filing. So what ends up happening is at some point in time, Catherine, who is Robert's widow, she gets tired of waiting. And in August of 2007, she has gone through the hoops of like starting to talk to the press and demanding that like a, like they get a real prosecutor involved in this case. I did see that the case had earned what's known as vagabond status. Do you know what that means? Uh, that I don't really know. Some a case that's just kind of hanging out, I guess. Sort of. Vagabond status is when it doesn't have a home or a jurisdiction within oh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. They didn't really know what to call this case. So when that happens, the case becomes homeless. Eric Holder comes to help Catherine. Well, so this is someone who's going to be the attorney general starting in 2009. Because it had been bounced between, I think it's either three or four separate prosecutors who take a crack at it. Eric Holder gets involved. And on the first anniversary of Loam's death, Catherine holds this big press conference and she's looking for public assistance. This is the first time she's talked about the case and she doesn't just 
like say if you know anything tell us holder gets up there and on her behalf he says price zaborski and ward they need to look internally and ask themselves have they provided with like the police and law enforcement and and all of the people involved in this case all of the information that they know and it's sort of a point of appeal there's a lot of support for Catherine from all of these different organizations that Robert was a part of and from the Asian American community. The second anniversary, there's no press conference. Nobody talks about this case to the police. That's in August of 2008. However, in October of 2008, the police start to file sort of haphazard charges they hit the guys with various obstruction of justice charges. Now, this is taking place in D.C., so it's all federal court. One of the guys had moved down to Florida, but he was still attached to the other people because the house he was living in belonged to Jonathan Price. So October, they arrest him. That's Dylan Ward. Dylan Ward. In November, they come back and they arrest Joseph Price, and they arrest uh, Victor Zaborski, all of them are charged with obstruction of justice in the death of Robert Wong. They get released, but they get put on electronic monitoring. They have curfews. In December of 2008, right before Christmas, they file conspiracy charges against all three men. They get further restrictions in some ways, but then they turn around and they stop the electronic uh, monitoring and the curfew restrictions. And the prosecutors threaten them in open court and say that they're considering how they're going to proceed with charges that the three of them tampered with evidence. So there's an affidavit that's filed and it shows that like, there's some different things that, that happened here. Basically, the arrest warrant for Ward says that the evidence tends to demonstrate that Robert had been restrained, incapacitated, and sexually assaulted, and then murdered inside their these guys' address. And they, quote, had overwhelming evidence far in excess of probable cause that the three of them had obstructed justice. I don't know how you felt about all of this. They sort of go through it in the documentary in a way that makes no sense. I felt like um, it was a big leap to say that there was evidence that he was restrained. Yeah, this guy really doesn't have a mark on his body. Um, it's actually like sort of um, it's sort of a shocking crime scene in its lack of anything. There's not much to this crime scene. Right. That's that's correct. The end result of this is these guys get really good lawyers. The lawyers request a bench trial. So a bench trial is different than a jury trial in that you're not trying to convince 12 people you did or you did not do something. Prosecutor's not trying to convince 12 people you did something. You don't have to defend yourself against 12 people. You're just trying to convince the judge. Now, the judge does something weird. She sort of lambast all three of them morally and says there is some evidence here. But uh, she says she can't figure out what the evidence means. 
So she finds them legally, but not morally, not guilty of charges of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, or these bizarre tampering with evidence charges. One of the problems they have is the government made some really bad missteps in this case in that they spent a lot of time releasing information about these three defendants to the press. Very personal information, particularly from the perspective of like their, their sex lives, their intimate lives together, their relationships. Were con- they were constantly threatening to release information about their internet search history, which I don't have anything terrible in my internet search history, but I would be very happy if no one ever released my internet search history because of this case, if nothing else, because um, I had to Google a lot of things to understand what was happening with uh, not just the case itself, like improper in the documents and the documentary. Like I like they talk about tens units, and I know you know what tens units are, the electronic stimulation units that people use for the relief of pain. Yes, I know what they are. Mm-hmm. Well, somehow the government decided the best thing they could do was to release online profiles and photos of the various sex toys in these guys' houses, and and that included a tens unit, and it took me hours of Google searching that I will never get back or be able to completely cover up from apparently anyone about how a TENS unit, an electronic TENS stimulant unit, could have anything to do with a sexual assault. And I, Lynn Leibowitz, is the, she's the judge in this case, and she pitches the whole thing. So where we sit with this case, as of today, there was a massive wrongful death suit filed against the three guys, and there was some level of settlement Um, The documentary indicates that there was a private conversation held between Catherine, Price, Zaborski, and Ward, and whatever was said there, they all decided that they would settle this financially so that she had some compensation for it, and they would all move on. But the details of that conversation have never been revealed to the public. Ultimately, Robert's case is not just unsolved. It's considered to be one of the weirdest and most mysterious homicide cases in the history of Washington, D.C. And I drug you right through it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you, you asked me to take a look at this one. Um, I looked at it, you know, it, I so I'm an ally of the LGBTQ community, and I always have been. And, and the reason I am is because I have multiple people in my lives that have needed support in ways they would not get it in situations like this. Um, I have two people very close to me that, like, I understand why their private life is private. I don't ask a lot of questions. But even in 2023, I could see if something happened in their lives and things were being examined. Like these people are both, uh, one of them in particular, they are basically angels. Like they're like the best people on the planet. But they, because of where they live and because of like their choices and in, in personal preferences, they would literally be torn apart by law enforcement if they were to be accused of something. So this crime aligns with that and it has a very special place in my heart because of that difference. Does that make sense to you? Well, sure. Um, I don't know that we get to see sort of 
the outcome very often. Now, this was in 2006, so while it's not ancient history, it is quite a while ago, right? 17 years. And so I had a very clear and very concise uh, resolution, in my opinion, to this case. Okay. And um, I was baffled by how the documentary exists to begin with (laughs) and how they did absolutely go on and on and on with the, you know, the affidavit (laughs) that detailed all these very personal details of these, of these men, right. Of of all the stuff they found basically. And, you know, I, I, of course I do my best like true crime work when I'm, uh, sort of half listening to stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, you know, your monotone voice. <laughs> um, but I, I do my best thinking when it's, I'm absorbing it and it sort of processes. And so I, I want to um, read a little something uh, that I found. And, and I want, um, if you can, to, uh, when I get to a certain point, I'm going to have you do something. So, um, so, After um, Robert was pronounced dead at the hospital, so he's taken from the house and uh, he's unfortunately passed away, Um, his body's transported to the chief medical examiner for the District of Columbia, um, Dr. Lois Goslinski. Goslinsko? No. Goslinski. Okay, Goslinski. Goslinski. I know who you're talking about. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but I know who you're talking about. All right, I believe what well, she was on the documentary. I believe she's blonde and she's a little. Who you talking about? The blonde girl. Yeah, uh, that's her. Um, and so she's a she's a, a woman. Uh, she's, but the doctor, the chief medical examiner of District of Columbia, um, did. Well, actually, I don't know that she is the chief medical exam- examiner, but she works in the office, right? And she's a doctor. And she did the um, autopsy on Robert Wan's body. And so specifically, she found um, that Mr. Wan sustained three stab wounds. One was uh, involved the abdomen, diaphragm, small intestine, pancreas, and superior mesocentric vein. Yeah. One of them involved the right lung, and one of them involved the chest with the pericardium, aorta, and the heart being damaged. Okay. The wounds were not very far apart from each other, and, you know, they were all kind of consistently on the upper ish right torso keeping in mind what i just said about it involving like the stomach and um small intestine pancreas that's a little bit further down than upper right torso right but just keep that in mind and they were four to five inches deep and they were approximately seven eighths of an inch in length on the skin surface okay okay so so we're talking about Three just straight up stab wounds, right? <laughs> I mean, they didn't move at all. Um, there's no slashing involved. It's just the knife going in four to five inches, coming out, going in, coming out, going in, right? Yep. Um, the wounds were oriented identically. 
okay? And so the sharp edge of the knife, this is what I want you to imagine. So imagine you're holding a knife. All right. All right. And imagine that when the knife is inserted, that the sharp edge of the knife points towards the right shoulder of the victim. Okay. And the blunt edge of the knife pointed diagonally towards Mr. Wan's left side. Okay. Okay. Now, do you... It's a, do you he, have, he stabbed himself? He did. Is this Sepakura? He's Chinese. That's Japanese. I mean, pop, pop, pop. Yeah, he, I, I, I follow what you're saying. He, it, um, he went the, right to left. The direction of each stab wound was front to back and slightly downward. Front to back, downward. Yeah, he did it himself. Huh. And so, Why? Um, that couldn't have been a Because if somebody had done that to him, they would have to have been coming from up over his head. And that wouldn't make sense based on the room layout. Now, so that's what gave me, uh, what, what made me look for the actual wounds from his autopsy report mm-hmm. was they said that the wounds were done with medical precision, right? And that there was no struggle and there was like hardly any blood. Right. Okay. And, uh, there were signs that the crime scene had tried to be cleaned up. And the reason is I felt like, so he hit his abdomen probably first. That's too low. Then he hit his lung, right? Yep. And then he hit his heart. And finally, with the heart, he would have died in about 60 seconds based on that injury, like where he cut, ugh, he cut the. Yeah. I- okay. Now, I don't know, like, what happened to um, all of his blood. Uh, I do think that initially he may have cleaned the crime scene up himself a little bit because, like, the, there were some things about the knife being wiped. But basically, he had, like, a bloody towel. His friend, um, Joseph, he said when he came in, he might have taken the knife out or it might have just been laying there on his chest, right? Well, yeah, I, I remember that. And they, he came back to say that because he didn't want it to be misconstrued. And they ran with that and tried to use it against him. But the bot, okay, I just want to point out something about that. I watched an explanation from Henry Lee. It's partly included in the documentary. There's a website out there that has like a lot of the legal documents on it. It's either who murdered Robert Wone.com, and his last name is W O N E. Um, or there's a, a site with a similar name that has like a bunch of the different uh, information. Bottom line is this. He probably was bleeding inside because they would not have. And Henry Lee basically said he could have been bleeding internally and you would not have seen it on the outside. He, the way he described it was like a ketchup bottle. Did you hear this whole thing or no? Yeah. So what that would do is it would essentially trap the blood inside. Right. And it um, would give the three edge. That is actually supportive of your well, theory. And so here's the thing. Um, I do think that at least Joseph 
probably figured out pretty quick that it was suicide. I don't know for certain um, if, like, I mean, it's possible that the unlocked back door blew open, okay? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's also possible that, you know, um, that somebody opened it, like, within the house or that Robert opened it um, and took the knife and, you know, everything, every single thing that they point out and they try to say is guilt of these three men, um, it actually is. Now, granted, they start by saying an intruder must have done it, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, that could be a lot of things. It could be denial. It could be a genuine belief that some intruder actually did this, right? Um, but I think at the very, very, very worst, the only thing that they did, if they did anything at all, was not say my friend killed himself. And I'm not even sure that they even knew it. Right. Because I I don't know if, if (laughs) I hate to even bring this up again, but at some point, during um, one of his interrogations, Alec Murdoch tells uh, the investigators, he said, so you think that it wasn't random? When he says that, of course, I'm going, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, because of course it's not random, right? Random things like that don't happen, like to his family, what happened to his family, right? And I think that it could be a genuine perception to somebody who you know, has no idea otherwise that, you know, it would be totally possible for some random person to have scaled the fence and came in the back door and stabbed their friend, right? Because, you know, we live in a world where perception is everything and the perception is that we're all in danger all the time, right? But in reality, and you can see this in the documentary, like it was practically impossible that someone uh, came in the house, uh, the way that they indicated the person would have come in. The other thing was like, so nothing was stolen, right? Um, Robert was there for one night. Who's going to show up to kill the guest for one night, right? Yeah. The men all like, they were acting like stunned, I think. Uh, I don't think that the two guys that weren't his college buddy or law school buddy or whatever they were, uh, Joseph, I don't think that they, uh, I mean, they were acquainted with him, obviously, but besides the shock that like somebody had died in their house, like while they were there sleeping or whatever, I think that every single reaction they had that is pointed out in this documentary would be a situation where you were like, oh my gosh, this guy was visiting and he died, right? Yeah. It, it isn't any sign of guilt whatsoever. I feel like if you kind of think it through, the knife wounds, uh, they really are best explained as being self-inflicted. They, they are, now that you said it the way you said it, they absolutely are. And I don't see why no one has said this. Um, I think perhaps it, and I hate to even be the person saying it because this is not a case I would cover, but for the fact I just watched a documentary on it, right? Yeah, normally this one wouldn't come up, but yeah. At the very best, worst, whatever, this is a situation where this poor guy, 
I, I don't know why he killed himself. Um, he went to a continuing education course. He had started a new job. Perhaps he didn't like his new job. Perhaps he'd gotten bad news at work. Like none of that stuff is covered in the documentary, right? We don't know like hardly anything about his last day, right? It, I don't know that he was like planning it. I don't know what information might have existed on that night back in 2006, right? That would have made him decide he was going to kill himself. But I can see where he thought his old buddy could handle it better than him going home and doing it, you know, at his house and his wife finding him, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, there's just a lot of things that aren't explored there. Now, it is interesting, and I don't know, like, when you've got from the jump it being said like, oh, someone broke in or some an intruder stabbed him, right? I don't know how much of that carries over, like, you know, into the ambulance and then into the hospital and then into the coroner's office, right? Yeah. And how much of it is actually like an actual determination, right? Because to me, I don't even see how an intruder would have made these wounds, I guess would be the way to say. I don't even see how somebody besides the person like doing it to themselves would have been able to do it. And then to stay perfectly still, that is what really made me go, wait a minute, because nobody stays perfectly still while they are being stabbed three times. No, they do not. And uh, so I would believe that you could have a still body during a stabbing, not without uh, cast off and some of the other things that happened. There's really no blood evidence in this case, which they're confusing lack of evidence with absence of evidence, with cleanup of evidence, like the police are in this instance. And I think suicide makes the most sense to me um, for a number of reasons. Uh, I absolutely believe that you hit the nail on the head. And I, I think that Robert Wohn is a suicide. But man, what friends, right? Well, they um, didn't say a word. No, they did not. They put it on an intruder. I, I thought it was a fascinating case. I think people should watch the documentary. I think you should ask questions anytime something like this happens and, and people jump to murder. I was totally prepared to run down a rabbit hole with you there of some big conspiracy, by the way, I was going to like go with it. Um, but well, that's all uh, I got. I mean, I feel I, like he killed himself. Yeah, no. The, the minute you described the wounds to me, um, I, I don't. I, I mean, especially because I saw the knife. I know, boop, boop. I mean, I can like picture it, like literally. I, I knew exactly what he was doing when he did it, oh, and um, he, you know, and I can actually see him not. Like I can see the first one being hard, the second one being harder because he like still is there and it's he's not even bleeding and I can see him. and then the third one and um that that's all I have on 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 Robert Wone. I mean there is like uh there isn't much else you can say when it comes to something like that having happened. Yeah, um, it it never comes up at all that it you know that I, is that a natural thought that like oh this was I mean did you think it at all? Oh, I got to the end of the documentary and I had two thoughts on his death and neither of them were murder. Well, did you think suicide though is what I'm saying? Yeah. I, um, so I had one uh, pretty 
out there thought. And we're not really the kind of show to do my out there thoughts. Um, but suicide was the other alternative. I just hadn't seen it the way you saw it. And the minute you said that, um, I was, uh, I was convinced that, that that was the correct outcome. Here's, I mean, how, like how deep do you want to go here? I don't know. How long is this? We're an hour and 22 minutes. I got four minutes to cut out. How far do you want me to go into explaining how I know it's suicide? As far as you want to. I mean, whatever you want to do is fine. I, so, I was just curious. If you, as an Asian American, very involved in the Asian American community, got a high level recommendation for a job that you showed up for that was not what you expected it was going to be. And the expectations of you were outside of your own ideals being a Chinese American, there is a significant level of embarrassment that comes with that happening. And I believe if you were to find that you were working for the CIA and were like, how did I even get myself here? Uh, I, I think that you would potentially say something that could get you killed. Or you might go home and not be able to face your wife and you might have a couple of days to think about it and you make a plan in case it's as bad as you think it is. And then you go to this late night meeting with Radio Free Asia, which is directly funded by the CIA and go, oh my God, I'm a spy for the American government against the Chinese and Chinese American communities. You might not be able to recover. So... Yeah, I absolutely think he killed himself. So, I mean, uh, that makes more sense than anything else. And the first time that, like, he realized what he was going to be involved with, because um, there's a lot of propaganda that goes into Radio Free Asia. Um, and it, it, it would have been jarring for someone like him to suddenly be involved in, like, you know, you're talking 2006. The Internet is around. Um, you've got these high-level government people that are moving into their next position, and they kind of say, hey, we're going to hook you up with this amazing job as counsel for these people. But by the way, you get a clearance out of it. You get a really high-level security clearance. Oh, and, and we got to tell you one more thing. You can never talk about what you do, ever. So, yeah, unfortunately um, – I, I think it's a suicide. Okay. <laughs> I I don't know. Like, I didn't hear anything about any of that, so. They don't mention it here, but that's the thing. Okay, here's what I'll say. The first thing that Radio Free Asia did was to get denied access during like Clinton and, and Bush. They, they started in the nineties. They get denied access to being able to cover Chinese matters. So they get these visas to go over to uh, China. And I think it's in 1997. I think get the visas for a trip in 1998. 
And then as soon as the plane with Clinton on it takes off from Washington, headed to Beijing, the reporters' visas, the RFA reporters' visas get revoked by the Chinese authorities. There were lots of problems between the Chinese government and RFA. And as a Chinese-American, you do not want to be the counsel for RFA dealing with the Chinese government between 1996 and 2010. You don't want to be involved. That's how you become a spy and don't even realize you're a spy. And then you kill yourself because you don't want to be a spy. I, I just, I, I don't know what to say to any of that. I don't know anything about it. That's it for us. <laughs> Do you think that the documentary is exploitative? Uh, exploiting who? Well, it's a documentary about a man who committed suicide. I think it's, uh, I think it's sensational. I think some people have trouble wrapping their head around that being a suicide. Well, I could see why. I mean, I've never even heard it brought up that he committed suicide. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been like, let's cover it. Because I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, this is like such a big deal. I don't even see it any other way. And I think that uh, a difference that like having the 911 caller not have said an intruder came in and stabbed him, like it could have gone a whole different way. But why is that not the main story in anything you look at, whether or not somebody has looked at this and gone, this could be a suicide? I have no idea why. If um, you and I can come up with it, I'm not, say, I'm not saying the cops would do it. I'm not saying reporters would do it. But I'm saying if you and I come up with it, why has like one of – there's like four medical examiner witnesses at this trial. Two for the prosecution, two for the defense. Why didn't they come up with it? I think it begins um, with sort of how the evidence is that, like, an intruder came in and stabbed him. Now, I don't know that the person calling 911 really thought that. I don't know if they they knew the man had stabbed himself but didn't want to say it out loud. I don't know what the motivation was there, but it becomes a thing where they have to defend those statements, right? Yes. And I think the narrative is built off the back of what is happening in that moment. Now, you know, there's always stigma associated with suicide. Yeah. And, you know, any day of the week being murdered by a random intruder would be more dignified than uh, the perception of the, of suicide. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, because it began from the jump that he had been stabbed by an intruder. Well, if he wasn't, I mean, because I assume the 911 caller was like, well, I know none of us stabbed him, so it had to have been an intruder if he didn't realize he had stabbed himself, right? I don't think it was the beginning of a story to cover up what they did. No, it's not. It's not. It doesn't make sense. I also don't think that this would have happened to like a heterosexual couple if he had been staying with them. I think that the, I think that the men being in a relationship together with a polyamorous third, I guess. um, I, I think that that weighed really heavily on the perception of what happened here. Right. 
Um, It shouldn't have. Um, However, you know, to me, I, I feel like these guys were just like flabbergasted at what happened. I do think maybe his his actual friend that he went to school with, Joseph, I feel like he may have had an inkling, possibly even known. There may have been some sort of incentive for, um, you know, for, for some reason he didn't want it said that he killed himself, right? And mm-hmm. honestly, for everything they went through, I mean they either didn't know or like they really didn't want to hurt the people that would be hurt by that. Yeah. I think a number of things run into your mind where when you don't know much about a person and, and that's not to say all of them don't, it's to say that like, you know, one guy's really close to him. The other people are really close to that guy and they know him. You don't want to do things that, screw up the guy's insurance policy so his wife doesn't get any money or get him slammed in the paper as being, you know, part of your private lifestyle. All the things that happened could have been the things they were attempting to avoid. Well, sure. And in a perfect world, it wouldn't have turned into this, right? I'll say this. Those guys in those interviews came across to me as completely innocent. They really seem that way to me as well. And the way that they don't ever posit, because, you know, it would be really easy to be like, well, he committed suicide. They might even be surprised that he killed, he committed suicide, right? I feel like they're more of the mindset that like, well, we know we didn't do it. So what the heck, right? That's how the interviews come off to me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we covered it. I do think it's exploitative. I think it's exploitive. I think it's sensational. Um, is it wrong? No, I think sometimes you have to show people this behavior so cops stop acting like this. Yeah, they, they, I don't think that that has crossed any of their minds, that the particular investigators and prosecutors, I don't even know if it's crossed the defense attorney's mind, but I wish it had of, because that could have well, really... The one guy ends the documentary, I, I think it's the end, or it's close to the end. He says, he if says, anybody, it was Dylan. <laughs> no, no, he says, he says, the first thing I'm going to ask God when I get there <laughs> is... Who killed Robert Wong? I'm like, okay, well, there's a number of problems with that statement. Nobody, nobody killed him. Yeah. Uh, he, he was not murdered. Um, and I hope that he is resting in peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. out of date 
use your private parts as piranha bait. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Get your toast out with a fork. Do your own electrical work. Teach yourself how to fly. Eat a two-week-old unrefrigerated pie. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Invite a psycho killer inside. Scratch a drug dealer's brand new ride. Take your helmet off in outer space. Use a clothes dryer as a hiding place. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Keep a rattlesnake as a pet. So both your kidneys are. What's this red button do? Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. Dress up like a moose during hunting season. Disturb a nest of wasps for no good reason. Stand on the edge of the train station platform. Drive around the boom gates at a level crossing. Run across the tracks between the platforms. They may not rhyme, but they're quite possibly. Be safe around trains. A message from Metro.